All right, everybody, we're going to go ahead and begin our, our first in-person discipleship time, and I'm going to open us with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that all truth is your truth, and we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word and through your Son, by the power of the Spirit, so that we may know we may believe, that we may obey, so that ultimately we may glorify you. So help us now as we think about a very sobering truth, the doctrine of sin. Give us your vantage point, your view, your thoughts, and cause us to believe what you say, as sobering as it is, and to turn to the only hope for the remedy of our sin, your glorious risen son. We pray this in his name. Amen. Okay. Well, you guys all know that uh, we're experimenting here. We're going to have to work out some kinks, but this is grow. Uh, you know, the middle school is doing discipleship and the kids are doing discipleship. Next week, it'll be the high school. They'll alternate. So lot, lots of pieces, but I'm encouraged that you guys are here and we have a lot to cover. So I hope that uh, on your screen there, you'll be able to see my little doodad a as we go along. But we're walking through a core doctrine series. And this is not telling you only what to think. But let me be clear, it is telling you what we believe God wants us to think. But how to think biblically. Another way to put it is, what do Christians believe? All Christians, all places, all times. Obviously, there's nuance. Christians disagree about a lot of things, but there are some things that no Christians disagree about. And this is the core doctrines of the Christian faith. So basic systematic theology. We're using our elder affirmation of faith, as you see there, to walk through it. We're taking every article, so you could get 10 steps ahead for eager beavers. We're taking every article from our elder affirmation of faith, and we're using three weeks to look at every one article. So you can see there week one, we're doing today, biblical theology, week two, historical, what have been some challenges, the historical development of these theological truths, how it's been systematized, and then week three, application. So, so what? What does this look like in our life? Well, today's week one. <clears throat> so far, we've covered four of these, and you're like, wait a minute, this is the first week. Have we covered four? Well, during COVID and pandemic and Zoom, we did occasional Sunday evenings and we covered the first four articles, each of those in three separate parts, biblical, historical, practical. So if you can do the math, we've done 12 sessions so far. And we've made our way to article five. So we've covered uh, the doctrine of scripture, doctrine of the Trinity, God's eternal purpose and election. We covered God's creation of the universe and man. And so today, we're covering Article 5 right there, and the first part of it, week one, biblical theology, but the article is entitled, Man's Sin and Fall from Fellowship with God. Man's Sin. So as I prayed, it, it's the bad news. Uh, if you have any questions along the way, I want to encourage you to either jot them down or make a mental note, and I will try to reserve a few minutes at the end. Sometimes we'll scatter, try to smatter those throughout, but today I just want to run through 
four aspects of harmartiology. That's the doctrine of sin. That's the, the technical term, harmartiology. I'll get to that in a minute. We'll look at four aspects of the biblical doctrine of sin. But first, let me read. I don't know if it's clear enough for you guys up there, but I'm just going to read our affirmation of faith, and I'll move my cursor down so you'll know where I'm, where I'm at. We believe that although God created man morally upright, he was led astray from God's word and wisdom by the subtlety of Satan's deceit and chose to take what was forbidden and thus declare his independence from distrust for and disobedience toward his all good and gracious creator. Uh, Thus our parents by this sin fell from their original innocence and communion with God. All right, so the article breaks up into five subpoints. That was 5.1. Um, 5.2, we believe that as the head of the human race, Adam's fall became the fall of all his posterity in such a way that corruption, guilt, death, and condemnation belong properly to every person. All persons are thus corrupt by nature, enslaved to sin, and morally unable to delight in God and overcome their own proud preference for the fleeting pleasures of self-rule. Last subpoint of this article. We believe that God subjected the creation to futility and that the entire human family is made justly liable to untold miseries of sickness, decay, calamity, and loss. Thus, all the adversity and suffering in the world is an echo and a witness of the exceedingly great evil of moral depravity in the heart of mankind, and every new day of life is a God-given merciful reprieve from imminent judgment pointing to repentance. As I said, very sobering. But the doctrine of sin, properly, uh, I guess, designated, is this big word, harmartiology. That's the biblical doctrine of sin. And in that article, 5.1, 2, and 3, there were just, there were really four things highlighted in all that specificity. There were really four things that were said, one in point one, two in point two, and one in point three. And I'm going to try to show those to you. It'll be these four, the doctrine of original sin. That was the 5.1, the doctrine of federal headship. That's 5.2, the doctrine of total depravity. That was also in point two. And then the doctrine of God's just judgment, divine judgment, 5.3. So we'll go one at a time and hope to, uh, to make our way through. The doctrine of original sin. I won't read it all again, but this says, in essence, I'll let you skim it, that we thus declared our independence from distrust for and disobedience toward God's all goodness the one who's our gracious creator. And when we sinned, we fell from our original innocence and communion with God. Well, you've heard the phrase original sin, but but where is it biblically? In Genesis 3, 1 through 8. I've highlighted a few words. I'll try to show why. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said to you, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The reason the you is highlighted is because it's plural. God is speaking to the woman. 
but the plural presumes that the man is present. That's significant. And he's silent. The next phrase in the passage says, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. And the reason or touch it is highlighted, as many of you know, God didn't say that. She added that phrase. If you go back to Genesis 2, the phrase or touch it is not included. You guys may already be thinking of the end of the book of Revelation. Anybody who takes away from or adds to this word should be accursed. We don't have the liberty to start fidgeting with with God's revelation. In Genesis 2.16 and 17, scriptures read, The Lord God commanded the man, this is before the woman was created, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Doesn't say anything about or or touch it. The phrase, the passage goes on, the serpent said to the woman, you, plural, surely will not die, for God knows that in a day you, plural, eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you, plural, will be like God, knowing good and evil. And the man's sitting there saying nothing. Now I want to remind you, that the woman was not created when God gave that command to Adam. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. She's created actually in the next three verses. So putting it all together, it appears that Adam told Eve what God said and that he stood silently by while the serpent was deceiving her and she was getting the text, if you will, wrong. This matters for federal headship. The passage concludes, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord, the Lord God, walking in the garden in the cool of the day And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So original sin is outlined for us in Genesis 3, 1 through 8. And the first point of our elder affirmation of faith on the the doctrine of harmartiology highlights that we fell from grace willingly, disobediently in the garden. The second point in the affirmation of faith deals with the doctrine of federal headship. It's the first part of the second article, so I've just highlighted that little bit for you. Let me reread it. We believe that as the head of the human race, Adam's fall became the fall of all his posterity in such a way that corruption, guilt, death, and condemnation belong properly to every person. So some would say, well, it's not fair That's Adam's fault. That's not my fault. He did it. I didn't. But does the scripture teach that that we're guilty because of his culpability? Well, that's why that plural you, I believe in Genesis 3, 1 to 8 is so important. Romans 5 teaches this doctrine of federal headship very clearly, verses 14 to 19. Nevertheless, 
death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who was a type, see that word, of him who was to come. He was a picture, a portrait, a foreshadowing, a type, that's what that word means, of him who was to come. Adam is something like him, and the him is, is Jesus. The passage goes on, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one, that's Adam, many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to the many. So what Paul's doing is he's putting forward the doctrine of federal headship. Adam represents all his people, Jesus Christ represents all his people. What's true of this man is true of all of them. What's true of this man is true of all of them. It goes on. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, that's Adam. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from the transgression resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. One man's sin plunged us all into ruin. One man's righteousness took all that ruin and made it right. The passage concludes, uh, no, I believe two more, one, two more slides. For if by the transgression of the one, Adam, death reigned through the one, Adam, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Again, he's underlined the same point he just said in the previous two verses, and here's his conclusion. So then, as through one transgression, Adam, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, sorry, it's red font. You know, I was trying to do the red letter Bible, but you can't see that. One act of righteousness. There resulted justification of life to all men. So if we would say it's not fair that Adam represents all his people, then you have to say, it's also not fair that Jesus represents all his people. And I don't think we want to say that. And Paul's showing how federal headship works, which is the second point in our elder affirmation of faith. This is verses, I think, 18 and 19. For as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even, through, even so, even so, even so, through the obedience of the one, that's what's in red, the many will be made righteous. He disobeyed, we're made sinners. This one obeyed, we're made righteous. It's a vicarious imputation. Wayne Grudem <clears throat> puts federal headship this way. It's a few sentences, so try to listen carefully. Adam, our first representative, sinned, and God counted us guilty. But Christ, the representative of all who believe in him, obeyed God perfectly, and God counted us righteous. That is simply the way in which God set up the human race to work. God regards the human race as an organic whole, a unity, represented by Adam as its head, and God also thinks of the new race of Christians, those who are redeemed by Christ as an organic whole, a unity represented by Christ as head of his people. That's the doctrine of federal headship. 
okay? So, that we are all originally sinful, Genesis, that Adam is the federal head of all humanity, and therefore we're all sinful, Romans. Now, number three, the doctrine of total depravity. You may have heard this phrase before. It's really explicated in the second part of the second subpoint in our affirmation of faith. Here, here's the way it reads. All persons, because of federal headship, all persons are thus corrupt by nature, enslaved to sin, and morally unable to delight in God and overcome their own proud preference for the fleeting pleasures of self-rule. In short, total depravity. When we, when we say total depravity, we do not mean everyone acts as sinfully as is possible. We know that's not true, and common grace teaches unbelievers, people who would say they're not Christians, they know that's not true. They know some are more, more are committing more moral evil than others. Everybody knows that. So total depravity doesn't mean you've done the worst things acted as sinfully as possible. Rather, it means this. Every person is thoroughly corrupt and entirely capable of every sin. There is no sin that you are not capable of committing. And it means all people are guilty of the worst sin, namely, not delighting in God. Do you see that in the affirmation of faith? Morally unable to delight in God. Total depravity means no person exercises the greatest act of obedience. Because at our core, we seek to deify ourselves. We're, we're depraved to the very bottom, manifested in all sorts of ways, but especially and unanimously among all humanity in our inability to delight in God. And worse, total depravity means, biblically, we are utterly incapable of fixing that crime. We're all guilty, and there's nothing we can do about it. Is this truth biblical? I mean, you can just proof text the Bible all day. I don't want to just rip verses out of context because you can try to make the Bible say something it certainly doesn't teach. In context, Genesis 6-5 would underline this truth. You've heard this verse. It's very sobering. Let your eyes fall on it. It says, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Who, who, who saw that? The Lord saw that. You may not think every intent of the thought of an unregenerate heart is only evil continually, but God thinks that. And God manifested to us in Christ knows this to be true. In John 2, we saw it several months ago in our sermon series, it is a riveting passage. Listen to verses 24 and 25. They're together here on one slide. But Jesus, on His part, was not entrusting Himself to them, for He knew all men, 
And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning him, concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knows us. Whether we agree with him or not, he knows the truth about the depth of our depravity. Thoughts of our heart only evil continually in our unregenerate state. And he will not give himself to someone who would commodify him, use him in order to step on him to make themselves bigger. That's that self-love that the affirmation of faith talked about, self-rule. So Wayne Grudem says there's two aspects of total depravity. So if you take all the biblical data and you put it together, you find basically two things, A and B, nature and action. Grudem puts it this way. In our natures, we totally lack spiritual good before God. You know those phrases of Scripture? Nothing good in me. Romans 7, nothing good dwells in me. Is that an overstatement or is that true? So in our nature, total depravity would teach we totally lack spiritual good before God, but in our actions, Grudem says we are totally unable to do spiritual good before God. I don't know how much you've thought about this. We say it, you know, semi-often at Grace Church that we need not only repent from the bad that we've done. We do need to do that. We also need to repent from the best that we've done. True conversion is that inescapable awareness of the glory of Christ and the grace of God to us in Him, especially His sacrificial death and resurrection that causes us to realize what Scripture says, our righteousness is filthy. Our holy things are dirty. And that's what total depravity teaches. The best we've done is worthy of condemnation apart from the righteousness of Christ. So the final part, and maybe we'll have a minute or two for some interaction, is... The third sub-point of the affirmation on harmartiology, that's the doctrine of God's just judgment. So if we're originally sinful and Adam is still now my federal head, he represents me, not Christ, and I remain totally depraved, what next? That's where this affirmation ends. I'm going to re-read it. Let's see if I can. Oh, man, you know, my fancy schmancy. You know, I like my blue cursor, but uh, you guys will have to follow along with the regular old pointer. Uh, We believe that God has subjected the creation to futility, and the entire human family is made justly liable to untold miseries of sickness, decay, calamity, and loss. Thus, all the adversity and suffering in the world is an echo and a witness of the exceedingly great evil of moral depravity in the heart of mankind and every new day of life is a God-given merciful reprieve from imminent judgment pointing to repentance. So, as I mentioned, we're talking about God's just judgment, and that's what that affirmation would be summarized to, to be teaching. Two verses in Romans 3 to begin our consideration. You know both of these, especially verse 23. I imagine all of you could cite it. But verse 9 says, What then? Are we better than they? Jews, Greeks, not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. 
So he's laying down the doctrine again. Everybody is condemned because all are under sin. Because for, verse 23, that's where the argument leads, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I love that as a definition, a biblical definition of sin. What is sin? Sin is mainly not glorifying God. So if you go back to the the verbiage of our elder affirmation, it says inability to delight in God. That's what we were made for. But everybody has not done that. So we're therefore all guilty of the greatest sin, not loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But Romans 9, you guys know, is a very challenging chapter. It brings this point home even more rivetingly. Verse 22 of Romans 9, what if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath, make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Paul's asking a very sobering question. Is God just like, I don't like my wrath so much. I like my love a little better. He's like, what if he is willing to pour his wrath out? But there's a reason he's not doing it. It's not because you're all not sinful. It's not because everybody's not deserving of condemnation. I built that argument in Romans 1 to 3. Everybody's sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Jew, Greek, no partiality with God. He's holy. We're sinful, period. What if it's not that he's unwilling to pour his wrath out? Why is he patient toward these vessels of destruction? He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Why in wrath just pouring out on all the people who are going to perish already? It's coming like Noah's flood, like a freight train. Nobody's going to stop the day of judgment. So that vessels of mercy will be amazed that we're also not going to be swept away in that flood. So that we'll marvel at the great grace of the cross of Christ the riches of God's glory upon vessels of mercy. So, Romans 2 underlines this same truth, verses 1 to 3, verse 5 and verse 16. I'll read those quickly and then one passage from James and see if you have a comment or question. Romans 2, 1 through 3, Therefore you have no excuse, every one of you who who passage judgment, for in that which you judge another, You condemn yourself for you who judge practice the same things and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls rightly falls upon those who practice such things but do you suppose this O man when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same thing yourself that you will escape the judgment of God but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. And then at the end of the chapter, verse 16, on that day, on the day, when according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Jesus Christ. So scripture teaches these four truths, original sin, federal headship, total depravity, God's just judgment.
And everywhere you turn in Scripture, you're running into this inescapable problem of sin, harmar theology. James says wonderfully a, an answer to a question we all ask eventually and often. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust. That's that depravity. That's where your sin comes from. Don't blame God. Don't be Eve and silent Adam in the Garden of Eden. She made me do it. Devil made me do it. No, 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 no. You love your sin, and you hate your Creator, and you want to be your own God, and there is no blame shifting, and you definitely can't lay the blame at His doorstep. Do not say God tempted you. He didn't do it. He can't be tempted, and He does not tempt anybody. It's your own fault. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. And the history of humanity proves that sentence true. Every person dies because all are sinners. So that's our introduction, biblical theology of Harmar theology. God willing, next week we'll look at the historical theology section, and then I lost my screen. There we go. Uh, and then, uh, Lord willing, two weeks from now, we'll look at applications. So what? So any, uh, let's say three minutes, comment, question, addition, clarification? When, when uh, he says Greek, he's referring to all mankind? Yeah, yeah, good question. And when he's saying man, yeah. and our... When we wrote that, we said mankind, and the scripture says man. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. I was just want a clarification. Yeah. Body yeah. That. Yeah. So, in the Bible, uh, there's one race, the human race, but there are two distinctions among humanity, and it's not your uh, ethnicity or uh, ethno-linguistic grouping or your geopolitical country boundary. The two groups of people are Jew and non-Jew. Uh, Israel and not, Jew and Greek. So yes, brother, uh, that's a good clarifying question for us all in understanding our Bible. When the Bible says Greek or Gentile, it just means everybody who's not a Jew. And then when the Bible uses man, especially in that like Romans 5 context, even Romans 2, man, even Romans 9, man or mankind, it means all humanity. And uh, yeah, such a sobering truth. Uh, I hope that doctrine of federal headship, if new to anybody, makes sense. Uh, basically, we're all in a single file line behind Adam or Jesus. And whoever's at the front of the line is the person God will look at to judge everybody in line behind them. That's federal headship. And uh, the Bible says, you're all behind Adam, unless God graciously regenerate you and put you behind Christ. Okay, I think we have time for, for one more comment or maybe a clarifying remark. Maybe I said something, you're like, yeah, I appreciate that. Let me add this. That would be perfectly appropriate. We're doing community discipleship here. So, Any other comment or question or addition or clarification? All right, BP. 
Do you think Scripture teaches that people, there's lots today, who haven't heard are under the same judgment and die, that are die, we know they're dying every day and we know they haven't yeah. heard. Yeah. Do you think the Bible teaches that they're under the same judgment? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, the answer is yes even if they've not heard these truths that are sobering or the glorious truth of the gospel, they're certainly under the same judgment. And there's a bunch of reasons, I'll just say two. One is Romans said so, even before the law from Adam to Moses, everybody was dying. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have, Moses wrote the first verses of the Bible as far as we understand, unless Job preceded the Pentateuch. We can debate on that later. But a bunch of people didn't have it from Adam to Moses. And they all still died. And Paul says, why? Because all sinned. So the same is true today. They don't have access to this truth. They're still under judgment. Second, and the biggest reason, I think Christians should embrace that all are under judgment, whether they've heard the glorious message of God, man, sin, and salvation or not, is because of what Jesus said. When he rose from the dead, he said, go make disciples of all the nations. Go tell everybody disciple them all, baptize them all, teach them to obey everything I said. Do that for the whole world, ponte ta ethne, all the peoples. Well, if there's a way for them to get to heaven precisely because they've not heard, the best thing we could do is tell nobody. Shut our Bibles. In fact, let's burn them close our lips, never tell anybody about Jesus again, then they all go to heaven because they've never heard. Jesus actually said the opposite. Go tell everybody. Uh, which must mean, apart from this message, which is precisely what Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through him. So yeah, judgment upon all men. And there is no such thing as innocence that was lost in the garden. There may be ignorance but there is not innocence. You can look at the stars and the trees and realize there's a God and you must know him. Um, but Jesus is the only way. So, very good.